Hi there. Hello. I'm Julia Guy. I'm Dan Hackborn. And I'm Belinda Ongaro. And you are listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. We're a group of Masters in Library and Information Studies students here at the University of Alberta. And every month we bring you fresh Library and Information Studies-centric news. The holliest, no, the jolliest news around. And for those of you who have never tuned in to Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies and do a serious investigative journalism. And this month we're doing some serious investigative journalism about our favorite stuff. Hard-hitting news about the stuff we like that we think that you would like too. Reader's Advisory is a time-honored library tradition, and so for the last three years, Shout has been serving up some advising for our December episode on books, music, and movies to make your holidays just that little bit weirder. And given that we are approaching the end of a decade... Crazy! We thought we would count down some best of the 2010s for you and your listening pleasure this month. That's right. We're going to give you our take on the best of the decade. Yeah, and Belinda, you're going to start us off, right? That's right. So what are you counting down? I am counting down my top 10 dystopian fiction of the decade. Get ready for post-apocalyptic landscapes, environmental devastation, controversial genetic engineering, technological mayhem, and authoritarian regimes that bear an unnerving resemblance to reality. Ooh. Number 10, Golden State by Ben Winters. I read this book just a couple of months ago and was totally captivated by its timely and controversial theme, truth. The society that Winters depicts is founded on the objectively so, and it entails panoptic surveillance, obsessive record-keeping, and self-censorship. Although the truth is ultimately less pure than suggested, Golden State still offers an intriguing contrast to our post-truth society, in which subjectivity is pretty well accepted and certainly not criminalized. Number nine. The Hunger Games by Suzanne Collins. There were a lot of YA dystopian books this decade, so I present to you my token YA item. When The Hunger Games was released, many juvenile readers were starving for something to fill the Twilight Saga void. Well, this post-apocalyptic, violent, drama-ridden, action-slash-romantic love triangle sure did the trick. The Girl on Fire inspired many a young female to attempt to side-braid, take up archery, and contemplate the ethics of cold-blooded murder. We will not speak about the end of the third book. Number 8. Amped by Daniel H. Wilson In this futuristic sci-fi novel, we get a classic story of discrimination, except the thing that differentiates some humans, called amps, is an implant designed to treat brain dysfunction, which gives rise to some unintended superhuman abilities. It's a wicked premise, and I really dig the postmodern integration of bits of newspaper articles and court reports that break up the narrative. The main character leaves something to be desired, but I mean, as main characters in our own life stories, don't we all? Anyway, fun fact, I interviewed Daniel Wilson for an article years ago, and I still have his phone number saved in my contacts. Number seven, The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. Okay, I'm cheating. This book actually came out in September 2009, but here at Shout, we believe rules are meant to be broken when it comes to recommending incredible books. I read this gem of a novel in a science fiction comparative literature class years ago, and some of the images are still burned in my mind. The story, which is set in 23rd century Thailand, offers a powerful exploration of sentiism, the agency of artificial intelligence, environmental devastation and global warming, Western consumerism, biotechnology, and science and religion. All that good dystopian stuff we fear and love. Number six, Robopocalypse by Daniel H. Wilson, again. 
When an artificial intelligence takes over the globally interconnected web of machines, robots turn against humans in a series of glitches that culminate into a full-on rebellion. And things get violent. Pretty graphically, disturbingly violent. And it's fantastic. We love gruesome death by robot. And if you can't get enough technology-driven destruction, there's also a sequel called Robogenesis. Number five, Mad Adam by Margaret Atwood. So just a heads up, Mad Adam is actually the third book in the trilogy, so naturally I'm also recommending the first two books, Oryx and Crake and The Year of the Flood, which were released before the 2010s. Loophole? In this series, Atwood offers a thrilling exploration of genetic engineering and environmental destruction with some heavy biblical vibes. Plus, there's lots of temporal shifts and stories within stories that leave you incredibly lost most of the time. So obviously I loved it, and so will you. Number four, The Circle by Dave Eggers. I'll just precursor this by noting that when I read this for an English class on surveillance societies, I think I was one of the few who truly loved this book. And it may partly be because I got a really good mark on my essay about it. I acknowledge my biases but I'm still going to recommend the heck out of it. When May gets her dream job with Google, <clears throat> I mean Circle, situated in Silicon Valley, she discovers an extreme version of what we all experience in the modern world. Absolute transparency, mandatory participation in social media, online data doubles, filtered communication, and the degradation of face-to-face -face interactions. Circlers abide by a fairly Orwellian mantra that proclaims sharing is caring, privacy is theft, and secrets are lies, and this philosophy is to blame for much of the disastrous consequences that ensue. The movie starring Tom Hanks and Emma Watson is comparatively meh despite the obviously stellar casting, but go read the book, just do it. Number three, Avengers Infinity War. Okay, if we're talking futuristic, apocalyptic, dystopian stuff, we can't not mention the work of Thanos in Avengers Infinity War. With the help of his bedazzled gauntlet, Thanos wipes out 50% of humanity in a devastating event that becomes known as the snap. Thanos justifies his actions by claiming that most of society's problems stem from inadequate resources. Thereby, erasing half of the people means there should be enough space and food for everyone to share and get along, right? Mmm, dubious. Side note, if Tom Holland as Spider-Man doesn't make you well up at the end of the movie, you just can't really call yourself a Marvel fan. And you were probably a sociopath. That's just the facts. Number two, Black Mirror by Charlie Brooker. Okay, again, not a book, but I stand by it. So far, we've been blessed with five seasons and an interactive movie, Bandersnatch. This show is terrifyingly timely and reminds us of all the dangers and controversies of technological advancements, AI, online identities, virtual reality, political scandal, the list goes on. It functions as an anthology of standalone episodes, but there are always plenty of Easter eggs connecting the storylines. If you've read Frankenstein by Mary Shelley, you know the age-old theme of single-sidedness and unrestrained ambition having destructive consequences. Well, Black Mirror is basically a whole lot of that. My favorite episodes so far are White Bear, which is super dark and twisted, and San Junipero and Hang the DJ, which are two of the more semi-optimistic episodes. Number one, The Testaments. Homegirl Atwood added again with her recent release of the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale. If you're not familiar with the premise, imagine a weird, religious, patriarchal world in which women's rights are fully restricted and a select group of women are ritually raped until they get pregnant. And people are color-coded. And if you break the rules, you get tortured or killed. Pretty dark stuff. 
on a brighter note, I loved the minds that Atwood gave us access to in this second installment. I won't give away any spoilers, but if you've not read it yet, be prepared to reevaluate some of your character perceptions. Also, mini shout out to the Incredible Handmaid's Tale HBO series. This came out at the perfect time, and it certainly has caught our attention. Something I love about dystopian fiction is that it simultaneously feels distant and immediate. It's easier to turn a blind eye to the hot mess that is our world, but dystopian fiction forces us to reflect on our vulnerability and consider how suddenly things can go from bad to worse. So there you have it, my top 10 recommendations. Take them or leave them. Feeling well advised and ready to obtain every item on this list? Be sure to hit up your local library, or Netflix, or Disney+. Plus. That was awesome. Agreed. I love dystopian stuff. I mean, when will the world just end already? Merry Apocalypse, everyone. Yay! <laughs> Thanks for enabling people to keep the stress of the holidays in perspective, Belinda. Oh, anytime. Keeping it real. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to Shout for Libraries, and today we are counting down the top ten, insert thing, of the decade. Yes, and our next segment is probably the most important one of all. That's true. Shouts Timothy Arthur recorded a segment for us on the top ten years of the decade. They were not all created equal, in true, fact. True, true. This decade has been a real roller coaster emoji. I think it's been more of an upside-down smiley emoji. I think it's been that one that's kind of like a face that has, like, the money vomiting out and is like, mm-hmm. bleh. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, yeah, that makes it's sense. It's a mood. But anyways, let's hear what Timothy has to say about the top 10 years of the decade. Top 10 years of the 2010s in no particular order. 2013, 2011, 2015, 2019. The 2010s were a blur, like the smallest row of letters on the vision test chart to my unaided astigmatic eyes. Sure, there are differences, uh... One has a more loopy shape, the next is more stick-like. But they all hurt to look at, and I can't make any sense of them. When we decided on best of the decade lists as the topic of this episode, I signed up with no hesitation. After all, this is my decade. I've become an actual person over the past ten years. And I've spent a lot of that time doing one of my personal favorite activities, consuming media. So it should be easy to put together a list of works that have defined the decade for me right? But as I tried to choose a specific topic for the list and to choose particular material for that topic, something just felt off. Of all the media from the decade that I enjoyed during the decade, nothing I could think of seemed truly representative of the time. And the more I thought about it, the more the past 10 years dissolved into a kind of confusion in my memory, one that I just couldn't grasp well enough to represent with material examples. The results of last week's UK general election brought the sense of vertigo into the political. The book ended the decade in an extremely unsatisfactory but entirely representative way. Boris Johnson's Conservative Party swept their way to a massive majority. Boris Johnson, the central architect of the ongoing Brexit crisis, riding to victory on the shockwaves of the catastrophe that he had helped to design and had promised to exacerbate. Hadn't I seen this before? Hadn't I seen this many times before. I experienced a familiar deja vu, one that feels more like a hallucination each time it's repeated, in circumstances where it seems less and less at home. A Looney Tunes-inspired vision of the decade formed in my mind. I saw the 2010s as the distance wily Coyote travels after overshooting the edge of a cliff, where he pauses for a time in midair. Here we are, running in space, as the ground collapses beneath us, 
fully aware of this collapse, yet somehow unresponsive to it, unable to respond. Who could interpret anything in this kind of fractured space? Finally, we meet the secret hero of this piece and find its true purpose, to revisit the late British cultural critic Mark Fisher's 2014 collection of critical essays, Ghosts of My Life, his reflection on an era haunted by lost futures from the now nearly lost decade of the 2010s. Ghosts of My Life provides a selection of Fisher's critical essays on music, movies, and books. Its subjects are as wide-ranging as 90s jungle music, Drake, and Christopher Nolan's Inception. They span from the 70s to the early 2010s, but Fisher always uses them to illuminate the present and future. Fisher shares my dismal feeling about the state of contemporary culture and politics, but he gives it a theoretical backing drawn from the pantheon of leftist theorists that make my born-in-the-wrong-generation whining shameful by comparison. He notes how the contemporary landscape is defined by formal repetition amid ongoing and accelerating foundational upheaval, a phenomenon he refers to as the slow death of the future. The result is that the familiar forms we see repeated feel more and more uncanny and out of place as the ground on which they were built gives way. Yet they persist. They multiply. But they also hint at something else, a range of possibilities not fully present, but never quite absent. Fisher locates a common source for the uncanny feeling of incompleteness that I've experienced in the culture and politics of the decade. And he succeeds where I failed, to find and follow the hidden traces of new possibilities that are concealed in the moment. As a whole, Ghosts of My Life is not Fisher's greatest single work. Look to his 2009 capitalist realism for a more cohesive and direct statement of his philosophical vision. But the eclectic nature of Ghosts of My Life seems fitting for a cultural critique of an era characterized by dissolution. Fisher connects distant strands, but leaves it at times to the reader to draw them more closely together. His thought is brilliant, but never overly esoteric or academic. He invites the reader to join in and he makes it worth your while to do so. Mark Fisher died an early death in 2017. He did not live to examine the worst excesses of the decade, or those that will surely follow in the next, but his prescient analysis gives us tools to face them ourselves, and to work for something better. Thanks, Timothy, for that enlightening assessment of the top 10 years of the decade. Do you agree, listeners? If so, give us a shout on social media. You can visit our Facebook page or Instagram at Shout for Libraries, or connect with us on Twitter at Shout, the number four, libraries. You can also find all our previous episodes on our SoundCloud. All right, who's next up here? It me. Dan, it Dan. Yay. What are you counting down for us, Dan? I'm <laughs> counting down the top ten publications of previously published content of the decade. Wow. Wow. So, coming in at number 10, we have the Love and Rockets Omnibuy, the greatest serial comics in North America, period. Fight me. Finally collected in an accessible format. The only reason it's not higher is that the first few came out last decade. There is no other piece of narrative art like this, combining perfect cartooning, sci-fi pulp, the twin influences of Latin America telenovela and multi-generational magical realist storytelling, and the most exquisitely rendered characters and character-based storytelling ever. Number nine, the New York Review of Books Classics publication of Marjorie Gorgeous by James McCourt. These days, people like to crap on critics a lot, and with some reason in the age of barf, TV recaps, and whatever else passes for cultural criticism in the age of the digital content churn. 
But great criticism can make you want to participate in a culture even if you've never cared about it, and maybe you still don't. It makes you at least consider the idea of participating in it. James McCourt does that with opera in the 1940s New York, of all things. It's effervescent, it restores the opera what many would consider a fading cultural institution, the grandeur, wit, and above all, vitality of a living, breathing art. For number eight, it's a tie. Beautiful Darkness, Beauty and Miss Don't Touch Me by the Karaskowitz, a wife and husband team of cartoonists out of France. This decade, their collaborations with two writers, Hubert and Velman, respectively, got a translation in English for the first time, and these three works are really, truly excellent. Miss Don't Touch Me is a nasty noir crime fiction set in the sex work culture of -of turn-of-the-century Paris. Beautiful Darkness, for lack of a better elevator pitch, is like the watchman of the borrowers, if that makes sense to you. And Beauty is like a classic Angela Carter fairy tale, a fable you could swear you remember from childhood, but somehow transformed. Number seven is the Purple Rain Deluxe Edition. I remember after Bowie died trying to think of the next musician that would really kind of blindside me if they died and being like, oh, Prince, that would make me really sad if Prince died. And then Prince died. The Purple Rain remasters in the deluxe edition was the first of releases that returned the rights to Prince himself. Do I even need to mention that the album itself is one of the all-time greats? Second disc serves as a wonderful introduction to the wealth of music that Prince, a restless creative of outstanding talent and drive, recorded and famously kept in his vault without releasing it. Number six, anthologies are hard. I didn't like most of Invisible Planets, best of Chinese science fiction, but solely because it's the most accessible way for you to purchase a copy of my favorite science fiction story this decade, Folding Beijing by Hao Jingfang, I'm including it on this list. I realize that another Ken Liu translation, The Three-Body Problem by Xixin Liu, got most of the Western press these past few years, but I love this one even more. The story is amazing, and it made how the first Chinese woman to receive a Hugo Award. It reminds me of The Wire. It's got a great sci-fi concept. What more do you want? Number five. While it's probably true that the aughts were the decade that broke nerd into the mainstream, this was the one that solidified the presence. If you had told 12-year-old me that he'd overhear normal people talking about B-list Avengers and the houses of Westeros out loud in public places on transit around water cooler equivalents, he would not have believed you and then he would have immediately demanded to be taken to this promised land. So for those looking for a deeper cut when it comes to the best reissue in comic book, ahem, graphic novel medium, I present a tie. The Eternaut and Mort Cinder, which introduced Hector German Osterheld and Alberto Brescia to North America. Two straight-up masters at the height of their craft doing braver, more complex mainstream comics than anyone else during the 60s. All respect to Kirby and Ditko. Number four, the Criterion release of Tam Popo. While there were obviously a lot of other great Criterion releases this decade, Stalker, Police Story, Night of the Hunter, Mulholland Drive, A Touch of Zen, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, to name a few, the chance to see Tam Popo for the first time, and in theaters even, was a treasure. It's everything. A western, a sketch comedy, a gangster film, fetish erotica, a foodie film, is that a genre? It'll even give you a decent overview of how to cook a passable rice omelette. The death scene at the end haunts me. I still get melancholy when I think about hunting wild boar in the winter. Number three. Memes. Shout out to This Is Fine Dog, Real Housewives vs. Ottawa Cat, and The Angry Bikers. Many of us quietly became pretty fluent in a new language this decade. This was the decade the image-based memes really hit the mainstream, and now you can't throw a rock online without hitting your great uncle sharing a racist meme that involves the minions.
Number two, Indigenous Rights, a collection of Chelsea Vowell's blog posts. This is still the first thing I recommend to other settlers that are looking for an introduction to the important and painful process of owning up to the context of our collective present and history. It pulls no punches while also being really funny and always eminently readable. Finally, number one, A Manual for Cleaning Women by Lucia Berlin. I sometimes run up against the way that you can never really go home again with art and culture. A lot of your adult interactions with them are a worrying case of diminishing returns where your tastes lead you down paths established by the pieces of art that really landed, hit you like a punchless solar plexus in your youth or childhood. Most new stuff never quite capturing that feeling and when you revisit those childhood favorites, oftentimes they pale in comparison to your memory and fail to reignite the way that you felt first experiencing them. But every so often you come across something that sparks that love affair again, leaves you giddy, makes you stay up all night. For me, this decade, that was this book. It took me too long to discover short stories as a medium, but Berlin is a master, able to use a muscular and direct command of language to illuminate pieces of life and convey a depth of feeling and meaning that other writers struggle to sketch out over the course of several volumes. Thanks, Dan. I like a collection, you know. Maybe it's a librarian thing, but there's just something about a collection. How you feel a collection. Yes, yes, I do. For our last segment of the Top Tens of the Decade Reader's Advisory episode, we have a review from Shouts Joel Bleckinger. That's right. Joel is counting down the top one thing of the last month. Yeah, he didn't quite get the theme. <laughs> uh, you might say Joel is kind of like the rebel of the group, really. Yep. He's a loose cannon. Joel <laughs> Can- makes his own rules and plays <laughs> by them. None. He cannot be tamed. No, so here is our very own Rebel Without a Cause, Joel Bleckinger, (laughs) counting down his top one favorite record of the year. Hey there. As listeners to the show may have intuited, I'm your garden variety record nerd. So for this month's episode theme, Best of the Decade Reader's Advisory, I thought I would bend the notion of reader's advisory slightly to listener's advisory and try my hand at a best albums of the decade list. The sheer impossibility of narrowing down such a list for me, however, combined with what I thought might be the dullness of hearing said list read aloud, presuming, of course, that I could even make up my mind to make said list, has caused me to just focus in on a very recent record that I've loved to profile here. This record is my 2019 album of the year, and thus, if we're being technical, it would likely feature on the imagined albums of the decade list that I'll probably never finish. The posthumously released archival album, Iowa Dream, by American songwriter, composer, multi-instrumentalist, and producer Arthur Russell, arrived in mid-November 2019 on Autica Records, and, like so much of his music that I've engaged with over the last decade, completely blew my mind. First, some background on Russell. As detailed in Matt Wolfe's beautiful 2008 documentary, Wild Combination, Arthur Russell was born in Oskaloosa, Iowa in 1951, studying the cello and piano as a child. At 18, he escaped to San Francisco, meeting and eventually collaborating with the poet Allen Ginsberg. In 1973, he moved to New York City, where he lived for the remainder of his life, eventually becoming the musical director of influential avant-garde venue The Kitchen, in the city's downtown scene. It was in New York City that Russell eventually met boyfriend and longtime domestic partner Tom Lee, with whom he lived in the East Village until his death in April 1992 at the age of 40 from AIDS-related illnesses. Russell's seminal World of Echo, the only full-length non-collaborative studio album he released in his lifetime, 
came out on Rough Trade in 1986. In the years since Russell's passing, a series of archival releases have surfaced, curated by Steve Knutson, who formed Autica Records in 2004 as a label home on which to release them, and Tom Lee, who's now the executor of Russell's estate. These have included the acclaimed Calling Out of Context from 2004, First Thought, Best Thought from 2006, Love is Overtaking Me from 2008, and now Iowa Dream. Russell was an extremely prolific composer and musician who frequently had several projects on the go under different monikers. For example, disco singles with Dinosaur L and Loose Joints, Power Pop with The Necessaries, and serious art music composition, such as his Instrumentals and Tower of Meaning, released under his own name. Perhaps related to this genre agnosticism, Russell was also a notorious tinkerer and non-finisher of songs and projects, leading to each release from the vast Russell archive being an event in experimental music circles. Which Arthur are we going to hear now? Rapt listeners wonder. Jack Denton of NPR Music, in fact, pondered this exact question. Which Arthur Russell are we getting on Iowa Dream upon the compilation's release last month? The evocatively titled Iowa Dream, probably one of my favorite titles of all time, to be honest, answers this question with, well, we get masterful, imaginative, and at times arrestingly direct songwriter Arthur Russell on Iowa Dream. Like Love is Overtaking Me, Iowa Dream provides perhaps the most accessible entry point to the Russell universe, with about half of it being pulled from recording sessions he did for Columbia and Mercury Records in the 70s. For more details on the fascinating circumstances of these recordings, which I won't get into here for time concerns, see the aforementioned uh, Jack Denton NPR piece. On Iowa Dream, songs like I Never Get Lonesome, I Wish I Had a Brother, and Sharper Eyes engage country folk forms and sonics, similar to Love Is Overtaking Me highlights like Close My Eyes and Maybe She. You got sharper eyes than me, old bird To see a worm so far away Russell plucking away on cowboy chords, singing plaintively on the former I never get lonesome, never in the day Never do I worry, I've got nothing to say you Are My Love and In Love With You for the Last Time feature Russell in heartbreaking solo-accompanied piano ballad mode, sounding almost standard-like in their clean, melodic phrasing and unflinchingly direct lyrics. Now I'm in love with you for the last time, it's the last time. I'll sit on this bench with you And from what you say I guess it's past time And I'll never see you again In this way, though they feature Russell on piano and not the cello, his regular instrument, these tracks remind me somewhat of other Russell solo insta-classics like Losing My Taste for the Nightlife from Another Thought or our Last Night Together, from the 2004 Autica reissue of World of Echo. Finally, Russell's avant-disco side surfaces in the comp mostly on its second half, in gems like Barefoot in New York, List of Boys, I Kiss the Girl from Outer Space, and the aching Follow You, 
which, in its gorgeous combo of gentle drum machine and acoustic strumming, brought to mind the title cut from Love Is Overtaking Me, one of my favorite songs of all time. Still, some Russell heads may bemoan that Iowa Dream is too neat, too invested in the country or pop song form, and to them, I would say, that Russell's pursuit of pop's power is an essential part of his legacy. As Denton remarks in his piece, quote, Russell believed strongly in the effortless profundity of pop songs, telling poet and close friend Allen Ginsberg that he sought to make, quote, Buddhist bubblegum music. Russell saw pop as an arena of aesthetic radicalism, end quote. The wonder of Russell's career and of these archival releases is that he veered in and out of genre at will, leaving the task of squaring it all for his sadly late-coming fan base to revel in and for critics to debate. This has been Joel for Shout for Libraries. Thanks for joining me. All the music in this piece is off of uh, Arthur Russell's Iowa Dream out now on Autica Records, including songs Sharper Eyes, I Never Get Lonesome, In Love With You For The Last Time, and what we're hearing right now, Follow You. Thanks. Thank you to Joel for that hot take. In a world of top tens, be a top one. Wow, that's beautiful, Dan. And on that inspiring note, we conclude this month's episode of Shout for Libraries. This has been Belinda Ongaro, Dan Hackborn, and Julia Guy, wishing you and yours the happiest of apocalypses this holiday season. Thanks for listening to another episode of Shout for Libraries, and don't forget to... Check, check it out! out.